Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today we've got a really interesting conversation for you. Uh, I sat down with Aaron Lowry of BrokeMillennial.com to talk about talking about money. It seems like a very meta topic for sure, but it is so critically important that we don't shy away from the uncomfortable, taboo, sometimes really embarrassing and scary conversations that we have to have about money in order to have healthy boundaries in our lives and to actually have a sense of getting not just our lives together, but making sure we're growing and leading our lives in a direction that makes sense with those around us. Aaron's latest book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, Give scripts, stories, and advice for navigating awkward financial conversations. And I have to say, I just finished the book last night. And what I found really interesting is, you know, not just the fact that Aaron gives advice at the top of the book for how to talk about money at work, which is important. And I think we've talked quite a bit about on this podcast before. But the parts of her book where she talks about how to broach the subject of money with your friends how to talk about money with romantic partners, at what time to have those big money talks when you're dating and it seems to be getting more serious, and if you do choose to get married, what those money talks sound like around marriage. And not only that, the last section of her book was the most heartburn-inducing for me, and that was a section about how to talk money with your parents. And if you are a woman of a certain age, And you might be entering a chapter in your life where not only your money is of importance to you, but you start thinking about your aging parents and what's going on in their neck of the woods and how that might soon impact your life in a big way. We're going to talk about in this podcast today what her book covers, which is the very real and challenging process of navigating, broaching those subjects with your parents and why it is critically important to do so. So let me tell you a little bit about Erin. She's a millennial personal finance expert, the founder of BrokeMillennial.com. She's the author of three books in the Broke Millennial series. The first is Broke Millennial, How to Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Her second is Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And I just finished her third, which we're going to talk all about today. Uh, Erin Lowry lives in New York City with her spunky rescue dog, Mosby and her husband, who she lovingly calls Peach, uh, and all of her writing. So, Erin, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So, Erin, you are the broke millennial, as you are known uh, online. Tell me, first of all, before we dive into this excellent third book you've now written, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got into the world of personal finance and what this journey's been like for you. It's been an interesting one because there was no strategy or plan to build <laughs> what this has become, truly. I I was joking actually with a friend just the other day how I just kind of fell backwards into all of this because like many people who wanted a creative release, I started a blog. It was 2013, so give me some grace. It would have been like a YouTube series or a podcast <laughs> or like TikTok if it had been in the last couple of years. And I really started it for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted a creative outlet. 
and I missed writing. And two, I was starting to notice just how many of my friends in my early adult life were feeling super stressed about money. Mm -hmm. And many of these were people who came from some amount of privilege and were having a decent amount of parental support. And so it was kind of boggling my mind that money was that stressful for them because what you grow up around is normal. And I grew up in a household where we talked about money a lot. And I was not on the, as I call it, parental welfare program. When I got to New York City at 22 years old, I was doing it on my own, working three jobs, made about $23,000 my first year living here. Oh my God. Yeah. But I felt in control because my parents had talked to me so much about money. And I knew, even though they were very modest means, I knew how to feel in control and live within them. And it was becoming very clear how many of my friends did not feel any level of control. It was just this pain point that they would avoid. Right. And I wanted to figure out a way to engage in these conversations. No one wanted to talk to me about it. And I thought, (laughs) hey, if I write about it and if I make it storytelling and narrative and share these like funny things that my parents did with that when I was a kid and things that I'm trying to deal with now, living in New York with not a lot of money, maybe I can kind of trick people into learning something about money. I did Mm. not know personal finance blogging was a thing. I'd never read one before. And so that's really, it all just started out of this creative endeavor. And then I realized like, wow, there's this whole community of personal finance bloggers. At the time, it wasn't huge. There was an okay amount, but now it's prolific. And it just really grew from there. And then eventually I got some book deals and things just kind of snowballed. And this is what I do professionally now. Well, congratulations. It really is inspiring. And it's such a great example of taking what you know uh, and making it accessible for others. That's the thing about personal finance, right? It's it's not always written in a very accessible way. Uh, And I think you do a really great job of making your writing super approachable, even when you're talking about some really stressful topics. Uh, And your, your most recent book, the third in your Broke Millennial book series is Broke Millennial Talks Money. So this time, instead of writing about, okay, here are the ins and outs of navigating personal finance or investing, as you did in your second book, you're talking about talking about money. What inspired that uh, approach and that focus on, on talking money? This is the book I have wanted to write really since the beginning. I ended my first book talking about how much we needed to talk about money. Mm -hmm. And I love this one because so many of us can construct these beautiful financial lives for ourselves. We work very hard to, whether it's dig ourselves out of debt, learn how to live within our means, start saving and investing in and growing our wealth. But man, do other people want to spend our money. Yeah. And it comes in so many different forms. It comes in being asked to be a bridesmaid in somebody's wedding, which if you read the book, you can tell I was like going through it emotionally about other people's weddings because I have some feels. (laughs) We're going to go there. Don't worry. We're definitely going to talk about that. (laughs) You know, and whether it's uh, loaning loved ones money or your friend invites you to a birthday dinner that you can't afford, there's all of these different ways and not you know, people aren't doing it on purpose, but other people make decisions 
And that does have an impact mm. on your financial life. And if you can't figure out how to communicate in a healthy way and set boundaries and figure out how to prioritize the things that you value without coming off like a dick, because sometimes it's like, well, I don't value that. No, that's not mm -hmm. how we engage in this conversation either. So it's this this boundary now of figuring out how do I decide what I like, what I want, what's going to make me feel fulfilled in my real life and my financial life, and how do I communicate that to mm. other people in a way that is acceptable and not condescending and not rude and not belittling. And it's hard. And so many of the conversations we have are fundamentally about money without any of us acknowledging that they're about money. Even as simple as a friend telling you, well, you know, we're thinking about having a second, but I think we're going to wait until our first is in kindergarten before we start trying. Fundamentally, that's probably really a money conversation. Hey, we're going to wait till we don't have to pay daycare for one kid. You know, we don't mm -hmm. want to have to pay for both. We're going to wait until one's in school and then have our second. But they're not necessarily saying that that's the reason. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was about to reference that because in the book, you give a lot of examples of how we're talking money all the time, just not overtly because there's such a uh, taboo around it, right? So you're talking about how to break that taboo in a way that draws boundaries that leave you feeling self-respect, right? I haven't, uh, I'm not going to resent my friend uh, after I spend a ton of money on her destination wedding. I'm not going to resent her for the next decade for how much money that cost me. I'm going to set boundaries up front and talk about what nobody wants to talk about uh, because it's so taboo. Absolutely. And, you know, we have been socialized and conditioned in many ways to feel that money is inappropriate, that we should not be talking about it. This is not a topic of conversation that you bring up. And there are elements of that that I can very much understand. I am not saying that you have to tell your friends exactly how much debt you have. You do not have to tell your friend exactly how much you make. Mm. But the existence of debt is a good thing for them to know. I want to talk about sort of in looking back on your book that I just finished last night, by the way, it's fantastic. I want to talk about talking about money, very meta here, uh, along three lines with friends, with romantic partners, and the most daunting of all with parents, which I think my listeners uh, are starting to get to that point in our lives. Uh, at least I certainly am in my mid almost mid thirties here where, oh gosh, I need to actually manage up a little bit when it comes to personal finance. So let's start with what I think is actually the easier of the three, which is talking money with friends. Over time, you give examples of how incomes can change over the course of a friendship. Maybe you were both scrappy, you know, side hustlers making 23K in New York 10 years ago, and now friends have different financial realities. How do you navigate the changing nature of your and your friends' earnings over time while being respectful and not condescending and not oversharing? And I'd be curious to hear from the perspective of one of the friends who's making a whole lot more and one of the friends who's probably making a whole lot less than the rest of your friend group. I do want to start by saying I started this chapter with a trigger warning. <laughs> you did, yeah. Kind of as a joke, because I'm like, listen, I've never once, and I talk about some sticky stuff, and I've never once said trigger warning. But when I was doing the interviews for that section, I sometimes on some of those calls was like, 
Mm-mm. No, that mm-mm. <laughs> I would not. My friends would not. This is not true. I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. The financial therapists are right. It's really hard with friendships as life changes, as situations change to have the very hard conversations of we are in different places now. Mm-hmm. We need to acknowledge this. This is impacting parts of our friendship dynamic. How can we work through this? That level of vulnerability is scary mm-hmm. compared to I'm just going to kind of stop returning texts and then we'll just see each other like every couple of months for coffee and then we'll just like like each other's Instagram posts and that's going to be the depth of somebody, the friendship where we used to be like absolute besties. Mm. Friendships tend to fizzle if you can't have these hard conversations. And oftentimes too, we look around so many times in our life and recognize how much we tend to self-segregate. And I mean that in the sense of people in long-term committed relationships or married couples tend to look up at parties and there really probably aren't many single people there or people Mm -hmm. who have children tend to be friends with people who also have kids compared to child-free either couples or people. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of a natural thing because you start to have, you know, similar lived experience, similar ways you can communicate, shared understandings. And listen, all of that makes sense, but also life is more interesting when there's a bit more diversity to it. But you need to be able to have those very tough conversations. So from your question of if you're the one that makes more, you need to understand and recognize a few things. One, the psychology of envy, that when there is a gap, and this could financial, obviously, but it can be in a bunch of different ways. This can be about beauty. This can be about athleticism. This can be about so many different things. But when there is some sort of perceived gap, mm-hmm. people are going to get envious. Like it's just our natural human instinct. You can fight it as much as you want, but it's probably going to happen. So you need to be aware that if your friends know, like, hey, if your best friend is a public school teacher and you work in tech and your husband works in tech, there's probably an understanding of what your financial situation is compared to your teacher friend. Right. So how can you be a good friend in that? First of all, don't pick up the tab all the time. (laughs) Right. Which might sound like weird advice. If you have the money, why shouldn't you pay for your friend, especially if they don't have the same kind of money? That can Mm -hmm. start to feel really icky for your friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can come off like, I think you can't afford this, where you might think you're being generous. Your -hmm. friend might start to resent you. It might start to make them uncomfortable. And then also, if they don't, if they keep letting you do it, you might start to get resentful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting in that chapter you include, and really throughout the book, you include specific scripts, truly, like phrases, conversation bubbles full of actual text to use here saying, you know, as opposed to just letting that happen and letting whatever kinds of feelings, you know, occur individually, actually saying, quote, I care about time with you and I want to ensure we don't lose our friendship with each other. Or to navigate a more specific example, you invite your friend, like I invited my bestie who was finishing her PhD last February to Havana, Cuba, right before the world shut down. We went on a week-long vacation in Havana together and like navigating the finances of what we were comfortable spending and what our budgets were and what our target was had to be done up front. And you give a helpful script here saying oh, we'd love to go on a vacation with you, but we're trying to save up for this other thing as a way to decline if that's the instance. So you're saying 
when it comes down to a friendship you really care about, you really want to preserve, and you know your incomes are starting to differ, um, to be explicit. Is that what I'm hearing? To be explicit and also to adjust what certain experiences are. So, yeah. you know, if you are the one who has a bit more discretionary spending money, and maybe it's not because you make more, maybe it's because you don't have children and didn't buy a house. Right. And so you still have more money to spend in this kind of a way. Whatever the reason, perhaps you just, you know, your friend who maybe has a bit tighter of a budget or they're saving up for a big goal or trying to pay down debt, offer other solutions. Hey, what about a game night? Hey, what about we go for a hike? Things that are just a bit more modest and in, or in spend. Mm. The flip side, though, if you are the person who either doesn't have as much or isn't interested in spending as much, I love the counteroffer technique every time of yeah. I want to spend time with you. However, you know, X, Y, Z either isn't in my budget or I'm trying to save for this. Instead, can we and offer right. a different thing? Get a bagel and go for a walk in the park. You can tell mm. I live in New York. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> and if they say, listen, I hear you, but I still want to go to bottomless brunch with the rest of us. You have to be okay with that. That's the other right. part of this is if you decline, you have to be okay. You know, make plans for later in the week, but they're allowed to still do the thing that they wanted to do. And just because that's outside of your budget doesn't mean they have to change their plans. Mm. And I think it was you and your now husband, who you lovingly call Peach, uh, who started to see those invitations wither after declining quite a lot while you were pursuing and prioritizing some big financial goals, right? It Is was that actually risk? just me. Uh, it was just you. Okay. He was better <laughs> about things early in his 20s. We also, we were long distance for the first uh, four years of our young adult lives. But mm. yeah, when I was first living here in New York and, you know, aforementioned not making a ton of money, I was really focused on earning, earning, earning whenever I could. So if a right. babysitting opportunity or an extra shift at the coffee house opened up, I would jump on it. And it made me a pretty flaky friend because I didn't like committing to things just in yep. case something else came up or I would just say no. And if you say no enough times, people stop asking. Yeah, And that's true of platonic relationships and romantic relationships. So on the flip side, the thing that I really encourage people to do, no matter really your financial situation, is to find ways to invest into your relationships. Mm. And sometimes that means passing up the extra shift, which within reason, obviously, if that's a, I have to have this money to pay my bills situation, but right. if your needs are being met and you can afford like one night off to indulge with going out with your friends or just having them over doing something that's still within your budget, also mm. have a friend fund, put a little bit of money aside every paycheck, even if it's just a few bucks, but it starts to build up. So every so mm. often you can just say yes. And it doesn't have to be this big thought process for you. Because you have saved up specifically for that. But do please keep in mind, obviously, your financial life and financial stability is very important. But mm -hmm. so are relationships. And that's a different kind of wealth that takes tending to and investing in. And you need to keep that in mind. And I think you shared in the book, you felt a little bit of regret and not having done that. Um, I certainly so in my early... Right? Yeah. I, I certainly share that in my early adulthood I felt like friendships were a luxury I could not afford. And so if you're hearing this and you are somewhat rigidly clinging to a budget and a debt pay down plan, it's so it's such wonderful advice to hear 
um, valuing the intangible that is friendship and making room for that in your budget so you can spend time and or money in a way that doesn't trigger guilt in such a rigid way on your friends. And that's that's important and it can be easily overlooked. Um, and I will say being debt-free does feel good, but <laughs> right. so does having memories and having friendships and having people that you can lean on when you need them. Mm. And just be a little bit careful that I know there are people who follow certain financial gurus who have very black and white, very rigid advice about how to handle things like debt payoff. You are allowed to have a little bit of pleasure and fun. You do not need to live in a state of deprivation for years on end in the pursuit of total debt freedom. And I mean, all the science on goal pursuit says deprivation is not good for your goals anyway. So it's strategic. There's a good moral case there that we should all hear more often, but there's also a strategic case to be made, like total rigidity and uh, a deprivation approach to this will actually probably backfire. So live it up a little, my goodness. Uh, You only live once, right? (laughs) Yep. Okay. I've got to talk weddings with you before we move on from friends to romantic partners. How many weddings did you go to, first of all, in your 20s and have since? It's insane in the book. Uh, I'm 32, well, almost 32. I keep rounding up. I'm 31 (laughs) now. I have seven invitations for 2021. What? Yeah. And you've got like 30 weddings under your belt, right? Yep. So, and I have to say (laughs) in the book, when I did the math, I share in the book, I and my husband have spent over $20,000 going to other people's weddings. Yeah. And- I, is that just mine? It's that obviously we're a couple now, so it's also people too. But yes, between us, we have been to over 30 and (laughs) have spent over 20 grand on other people's weddings. And God bless my parents. It would be higher, except if it's a family member's wedding, my parents usually will cover the hotel room Mm -hmm. when we travel. But yeah, it is. That is serious. That is serious business. And there are certain weddings I am so glad that I was there. Sure. There are some weddings <laughs> that I'm we not name entirely <laughs> confident who are worth the price tag. <laughs> and and to be fair, it's not just the wedding. It's the bridal shower. It's the, if you're going to be in the wedding, the bridesmaid's dress. It's the uh, whatever other events get wrapped into the wedding industrial complex these days. I mean, that warrants its own book, honestly. How do you counsel folks on drawing healthy healthy boundaries around balancing the importance of being there for your friend on their special day versus the realities of your budget. What should folks keep in mind when that next wedding invitation hits the mailbox? Yeah, because that's a bill, by the way. I <laughs> I do feel strongly that the only things we ever get in the mail anymore are bills. It's either wedding invitations or actual bills. <laughs> And I really recommend, first of all, you have to decide overall how much you're willing to spend in a season, which, you know, it used to kind of be truncated to a certain part of the year. Now it's really all year that weddings happen. Mm -hmm. But every year, if you're in the throes of wedding seasons, which tends to be like 24 to 35, how much are you willing to spend every year on that? And how much of your other interests are you willing to give up to fund Mm. going to people's weddings? So the vacation days you're willing to spend, the the personal travel or other things that you like to do that that money would be coming from, what are you willing to sacrifice to give it up? 
I also want to just make a point. You don't have to say yes to a bridal party invite. Right. Controversial take, but if somebody asks you, you do not have to say yes. Now, if you're going to say no, you need to give a reason. And it can be, I love you and I really want to be there to support you, but I know how much it can cost to be a bridesmaid. And I do not want to have any sort of like back and forth between us or any sort of resentment because my budget is pretty tight right now. I will definitely be there at the wedding and I will stand up for you and be super excited for you. But being an actual bridesmaid just isn't in my budget right now. Mm -hmm. Your friend might do the whole like, oh, it's not going to be that expensive. She's lying. Yeah. (laughs) Unless she's paying for everything, which she is. Right. It is expensive. And the other thing you need to do is set really strict boundaries around what you can come to. Because I have been in weddings or even just a guest of weddings where it's engagement party, bridal shower, bachelorette party, wedding. And every single one of those events was a trip for me. Right. Yeah. That's real. And it, it, so by don't, the way, don't go to not, all of them. It's just not just the cash. It's the time too. And I, I will join you in the unpopular opinion club in sharing that I am a quick response in the negative type person. I am like, unless this is a really close friend of mine, I will happily send an expensive gift in exchange for having my time back. If that's not a wedding, that meets a a very high bar. My husband and I have an extremely high bar for the weddings that we attend. And, uh, we send our love and regrets and a fancy gift, and we call it a day. We wash our hands of it, you know? So th- those are options as well. It just depends on your value set and really coming at it from what do I value and what is my budget. I like how some of the scripts you share in that part of the book are, hey, I would love to be a bridesmaid or I'd love to be there on your special day, but you're getting married in Timbuktu and my budget right now is $500. So I don't think I can make this happen. Sort of countering with a little bit of vulnerability and transparency on what you have to spend. And as things develop too, if you are a bridesmaid and things start to get out of hand, as sometimes they do, or (laughs) if a maid of honor unilaterally makes a decision without consulting the rest of the people, again, you can say no. So if it's a hey, you know, I'm starting to realize as we're planning that now the wedding is in Detroit and the bridal shower is in Dallas and then the bachelorette party is in Nashville and I live in New York. Mm. Uh, What is most important to you for me to attend? Because I can only do the wedding and one other thing. So do you want me at the bridal shower or the bachelorette party? I love that. And I like how you call out this... uh tendency sometimes for maids of honor, and I'm sure this happens to groomsmen as well, getting just an unsolicited Venmo request. Like, oh yeah, just chip in, please. Right? Like, that is not okay. So, No. Yeah. Having transparency. I spoke to a girl who got an invite. I think it was like a $600 Venmo request. They had just booked a Tulum bachelorette party without asking anybody. Wow. I was like, what? Say no. (laughs) Advocate for yourself. That is ridiculous. You have to ask people. And you can also set that boundary very early with folks and saying, you know, I just want to let everybody know off the bat that all in my budget is X. And if you're not comfortable saying that amount, just being like, I just want to let everybody know I'm in three other weddings this year or whatever your excuse is. And therefore I can only do the wedding and one other destination event. And I need that to be within X budget. 
Right. Absolutely. And and saying that early and often is key. Yes. Um, please communicate early. That's the other part is you don't want to be stressing people out the week before and mm-hmm. you'll be surprised how many other people will probably ultimately back you up. Yeah. It's not unrealistic and it's not unreasonable. So uh, if you need the words, if you want a script, this book has it in there in black and white. Let's talk a little bit about money talks with romantic partners. Uh, I want you to explain the difference between getting financially naked, as you call it, and full frontal financial nudity and where those <laughs> where those things happen in over the course of a relationship. Well, getting financially naked is just kind of your basic learning a little bit about each other when it comes to money, kind of like the 101 level. Mm-hmm. And it, when you're dating and maybe you're just starting to be in a committed, more serious relationship, that can be things just like how much are we spending on gifts? How much do we spend on trips? What do our dates look like? What kind of lifestyle are we both living and kind of lifestyle do we want to have as a couple? But as the relationship gets more serious, and I usually define that by you look at the person and think, this is somebody that I could marry. And if you don't want to get married, just looking at someone and thinking, this is somebody I can commit to for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. That's when you want to start with the full frontal financial nudity conversation, which is bearing (laughs) everything, all of your things. So your salary, your investments, your debt load, your credit reports and scores, your financial goals, all of these kind of topics that we need to talk about when it comes to money, you need to share all of it. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to happen all in one go. I think that's what really freaks people out. You don't have to check all the boxes on the first (laughs) talk. Yeah. But it is critical that you really start to have all of these money chats with each other And where I would really want you to start with it is one, sharing financial goals with your partner and also starting to learn about their financial baggage and sharing yours because it is very good to know how our partners interact with money, what their emotional relationship is to it. Because when you inevitably get into fights, you want to know why they're reacting that way. Totally. It's, It's a psychology as much as it is finance. Uh, and the emotional relationship that I think so many of us get from our parents can be so vastly different as it is in my particular relationship. I remember sitting down with Brad the Boo before we moved across the country together from D.C. to Denver four years ago now, and I said, okay, this is a huge financial expense. This is a big move. Uh, And we'd only been living together for a few months at that point and only – recently because his really excellent living situation, which was living in a really cool, awesome Adams Morgan neighborhood of DC for 500 bucks a month was finally no longer an option for him. So I was like, okay, fine, you can move in. Uh, And then we were moving all of a sudden across the country, which was very exciting, but felt like a huge next level risk to take a bet of sorts. And that's when we sat down and said, okay, we really got to get super clear financially on where we're at, where we want to go um, before I'm comfortable making this kind of a commitment, you know, making this kind of a move. And that was, you know, a few years before we were engaged. So I just want to say it's so, so important to have that kind of incremental approach that you lay out in the book to get a sense of where your partner's coming from. But you also allude to some red flags that can pop up when you're attempting this. And I've been in my fair share of toxic relationships, so I appreciated the the red flags uh, warning that you kind of put in the book. Can you tell our listeners a bit about 
uh, what to watch out for, or at least be fairly suspicious of, and you have every right to be suspicious of, if some of these financial red flags come up in your attempts to talk money with your partner? Well, first, let me say debt is not one of them. Right. And that always seems weird to people, but I don't consider debt a red flag. I consider how the debt was created and is the debt continuing to be created the potential Mm. problem. So if your partner has student loans and they have a payment plan and they're working hard on it, that in of itself is not a red flag. If there's credit card debt, the question is, where did the credit card debt come from? Is there a plan that you're currently working on to pay it off? What's the deadline for debt freedom from the credit card debt? Mm -hmm. Now, if the thing is every single month, I am financing most of my lifestyle on credit cards and perpetually in credit card debt, that might be a red flag because that might really just not mesh with what you want as a lifestyle and what your ethos are around how to handle money. But the big ones I want you to look out for are things like, how are they communicating with you around money? Do they just shut you down every time you try to have this conversation? Does it just devolve into screaming and yelling? When let's say that you want to bring in a third party, whether it's a financial therapist or a couples counselor or a certified financial planner, if they're not interested in meeting in somebody with you or they don't want you at money conversations with like an accountant or a CFP, that's a problem. If you start noticing, you know, delinquency letters, bills in the mail, or if things have been taken out in your name without Ooh, your permission, yeah. big, big red flag. If there's any element of you need to hand me the money that you earn, I control the money, I'll give you what you need, that's a problem. So these are also all signs of like potential financial abuse that you might be experiencing in a relationship. And unfortunately, statistically, financial abuse usually is tied to other forms of abuse as well. So Mm -hmm. even though it may not start out that way, typically that is a byproduct of domestic violence in some way, shape or form. So it is really important for you to have very open, honest conversations. Now it's fine if somebody's more of like, the CFO, the chief financial officer of the relationship and does handle most of the investments and the bills because that's what they're interested in. But you as the other person need a say in things. You need to know how to access things. You need passwords to all of the things. If you know, you're know you in a married, long-term committed relationship, that needs to be something that you're of equals about and not mm-hmm. a, I'll just handle it. You don't have to worry about it situation. I think this is thankfully changing slowly, but I am still shocked today, Erin, by how many strong, independent, feminist women that I talk to who are like, yeah, I don't know anything about our money. The husband handles it. And I'm like, are you serious with me right now? It's one thing to not be the CFO, but it's another thing to have no transparency there. And I know that personal finance is not everyone's niche interest. And it disproportionately, that kind of education gets passed down from father to son a hell of a lot more often than from mother to daughter, which is a problem. Uh, But I just want to make it loud and clear for the women listening to this that you need to be involved. Like you need to be aware because as you go on to talk about in the book, (laughs) through your prenup discussions and divorce discussions, you know, not being not just read in, but included in your financial destiny can be disastrous. Is that right? And the other issue is what if they die? 
Like, yeah. I don't mean to be dramatic, but truthfully, if something unexpected happened to your partner, mm. do you know how to pay the bills? Do you know where the investments are? Do you know where the bank accounts are? Do you know how to access them? Particularly if you're young, because let's be honest, how many of us don't have wills? Don't right. have any sort of directives about this information. So you are now not only mourning and grieving the loss of your partner, but you're trying to figure out like, how do I pay a bill? Right. That and that happen. to me is yeah. a huge part of this is it's not just about like, yeah, it's a big problem if you're relinquishing all control to one other person, regardless of gender. Like even if you're in a same sex relationship, you both yeah. need to know, but it's also about I want to know that you confidently can take over this role should something ever happen to your partner. Mm. And unfortunately, the unexpected happens all the time. Speaking of the light topics that you cover in your book, the just the fun stuff like uh, end of life care, let's <laughs> talk about the most heartburn inducing chapter in your book, or really section in your book, talking money with our parents. Uh, I recently, uh, two years ago, sat down with my parents, two Januaries ago, uh, as they shared with me their desire to move to Denver, which I was like pleasantly surprised to hear about because they'd lived in Connecticut for all of their lives. And this was a, you know, they were sitting in the house that I grew up in that they'd owned for over 30 years. And I sat down and said, well, I'm here to help if you want to plot a cross-country move. I've done this a few times now. You haven't sold a house or bought a house in a really long time, and I have. I recently got my financial life together over the past few years. Let's do it. Let's open the books. <laughs> and let me just say, Aaron, I wish I'd read your book before then. I think I took, I made all of the textbook mistakes uh, that you warn of, which is like, frankly, just being a little bit horrified quite openly at um, at what I came to learn about my parents' financial situation. And to be fair, to give them credit, they had four children, all of whom, you know, drained them of resources for the past 30 years. But um, you write in a very approachable step-by-step -step way about how to start talking to our parents about their retirement plans, about the legal documents they need to have in place don't do it the way I did it, listeners. <laughs> it's not the best way. Uh, going in with your eyes wide open and with a, a, some support would have been better in my, my experience personally. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned in researching and writing that section of the book? Ask for advice. That's a good way to get started. Now, you had a very <laughs> unique system or situation, rather, where your parents came to you to a degree and you're like, hey, mm. I actually have all of this experience Let's talk about it, which is a very good way to start the conversation, but then, you know, not to be like, oh my God, because also very <laughs> similar to getting financially naked. Yeah. If your partner says something that's shocking to you, you have to have a poker face because yes. just like getting physically naked, if somebody gasps in horror, if you got yeah. physically naked, you're not going to do it again. It breaks the right. trap. So right. anytime we're having a money conversation with somebody, parent, romantic partner, friend, whatever have a good poker face because it's a vulnerable experience for them. You really want to try to keep the judgment out of it. Now, if you have, if you're in a situation and this, take it with a grain of, is this authentic to your dynamic with your parents? Salt. And I say that because asking for advice is a great way to get started. If it feels right. If your parents historically have been atrocious with their money, you know it, they know you know it, and they know that you're really interested in how to handle money. If you come to them and are like, 
hey, I just got a 401k plan. I'm trying to figure out the investments to pick. How did you guys decide? They'll be like, mm, okay. Yes, the tax <laughs> right. is going off. Or, I like that though. I like that approach. Right. It is subtle. And asking for advice for that with estate planning, things like, you know, just had a kid and trying to figure out all the things about who we would want to have watched the child if something were to happen to us and who would be the legal guardian. Like, how did you guys figure that out? Who did you turn to as an estate planning lawyer? Do you have any references? Those mm-hmm. kind of questions, the advice asking that's actually low-key mining for information mm-hmm. can be really helpful. Now, if that's just not authentic to your dynamic with your parents, it can also just be a very simple question of, hey, Jackie's parents just retired and moved down to Florida. And it got me thinking, what are you guys interested in doing in retirement? Mm-hmm. Really broad yeah. questions. See what they say. Start to get information that way. Similar to getting financially naked with a partner, this whole thing does not have to be resolved in one sit down conversation. This can be the process of weeks, months, or even years in some cases. Totally. And it's going to trigger some feelings, probably on both parties, right? On both sides of the equation, because historically our parents have been there to tell us what to do. And if your parents have neglected their finances, which like a lot of people do because parents are human too, uh, asking about them, even in a perfectly low key way, might trigger shame, might trigger defensiveness, might trigger anxiety. That's pretty much the number one feeling I think my parents associate with money. And you're not a therapist unless, you know, in the rare occasion you are. So navigating your own personal, I think, expectations for what you're trying to achieve here and what can be done on your own versus bringing in a professional, like you mentioned, with a partner who who might have some red flags, uh, can be a way to go in to the conversation as a support family member, right? As a supporter, not as a judgmental kind of critique of their situation because your parents' financial problem is often your financial problem. And you talk more about that in the book, when and how and if that is the case for you, regardless of how many siblings you have to perhaps share the burden with. What is your approach to not freaking out. Like what is your advice for folks who find out their parents have done none of that? Like really, truly none of that preparation that you're mining about. There's a few things you have to consider. One, yes, they're going to have everything you just mentioned, all of that emotional reaction, likely a huge amount of shame, and they're not necessarily going to feel it's appropriate for you to take on that quote unquote burden. Right. Now, this is a cultural thing. For some people, culturally, like, no, duh, you're going to take care of your parents. Your parents are going to move in with you. Like, this is just how it goes. And for some people, this is like, even hearing us talk about this is like, what? What? This is a thing. (laughs) Right. And for others, it's like, wait, you have to live with me now? That's how this is going? Or maybe it's uh, for my emotional mental health, this is not the best way for this stuff to go down. But you Mm. know that you're not ultimately likely to let your parents flounder. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, if they stonewall you completely, which some parents do, like they just are not, no matter how creative you try to get, trying to get this information, they are not going to give it to you. But Mm. you probably have a decent sense of what the reality is going to be for them in retirement. You could start an emergency fund yourself for your parents. You can start setting aside money right now, whether it's into a savings fund, whether you invest it, see a little growth on it before hopefully you have to use it, what have you. Something to consider. 
when you buy a home or you start to expand your living situation, keeping in mind, realistically, will mom and dad need to move in here physically? Can they live in this place or will I have to move again? I know that this sounds very dramatic, but to a degree, I think it's important to have this conversation so you know for your own family planning purposes. If you start to realize you're going to have to take care of your parents, it might change the number of kids you feel like you can reasonably financially afford and support. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that feels so stressful in so many ways, but to have the information early gives you so much more power to make plans, lay the groundwork. It doesn't have to be a stressful situation when the time comes. And the time also might come a lot sooner than you think. Please make sure you're familiar with your family medical history, particularly if there's any sort of history of things like Alzheimer's or dementia in your family, and you think that there's a pretty good situation that could happen for one or both of your parents, please have the legal documents in order prior Mm. so that you don't have to go through the very expensive, very emotionally painful process of trying to get conservatorship over your parents to be able to make decisions for them when they're no longer able to do that themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It is dark. I mean, it's a dark chapter of the book, but it is so important because no matter what happens, you know, if your life does go down that road, you want to be prepared. You want to have your eyes wide open and have, you know, healthcare power of attorney, a living will, uh, all of that stuff in place. So at least you've had one discussion at least before you're navigating what is going to be a really, really hard chapter in anyone's life. And a great way to bring that up with parents, especially if they're not really engaging around the money stuff, but Mm -hmm. to bring up the estate planning documents you just brought up. So advanced healthcare directives, power of attorney, healthcare proxy, all of those. You don't want to be manipulative and you don't want to be parenting your parents necessarily. So talk from the place of why this is a pain point to you. You know, I love you and I watched what you went through with grandma and I know hopefully this doesn't happen for you, but I have to be honest. It gives me a lot of stress that legally I cannot step in if something were to happen. So it would mean a lot to me if we could have a conversation about starting to create this paperwork and, Mm -hmm. you know, legally sit down and have this plan. So if something were to happen, I can immediately just focus on your care and don't have to also figure out all of the legal paperwork. And the other thing is you can do it together. I actually know of a woman who recently had like a will party with her family where everybody got (laughs) together and made their wills and did some of the other paperwork that they needed to do because we as young people need to have this too. It's not just for older folks. Right. Absolutely. Well, Erin, I could obviously talk to you about this forever. I learned so much uh, from Broke Millennial Talks Money. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your book series and all the great advice that you have to share? Best place for me is Instagram. I'm at Broke Millennial Blog. You can find me on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is BrokeMillennial.com. And all of the books, so Broke Millennial, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, and Broke Millennial Talks Money are all available wherever books are sold. Please support your local booksellers. And also, if it's not in your budget right now to buy a book, check out your library. And if it's not there, request it. Mm, Awesome, Erin. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your time and expertise and experiences with us today. I appreciate it. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about what we discussed in today's episode, head to bostup.org slash episode 310. 
That's bossedup.org slash episode 310. You'll find links to all of today's show notes, more details on Erin, where you can get her books, and all kinds of good stuff if you want to start getting your financial life together. Speaking of, it is time for a little celebration of someone who's started to get her life and career together in a new and exciting way. And that is this week's Boss Move of the Week, which comes in from Valerie, who shared the following in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, which, by the way, if you haven't joined yet, you got to join us there. Find a link in today's show notes. It's the best place to be on Facebook. It's the only reason I'm still on Facebook, and it really is an amazing place full of women championing other women uh, and helping us advocate for ourselves. Here's what Valerie had to say. My promotion starts next week, and my boss said he's going to try to negotiate a better pay rate for me. I'm excited for the position either way. And if we don't get the number we want, appraisals are in March. So there will be a second opportunity. That's great, Valerie. It's hard to remember sometimes negotiating for yourself is sometimes done through a proxy, through your boss who has to go to the table for you or has to go to bat for you. So one of my biggest negotiation uh, tactics that I, I come back to often in our free negotiation guide at bossedup.org slash negotiation uh, is making sure you equip your boss or your colleagues with the information that they need to advocate on your behalf. So sometimes it looks like asking for allyship and sponsorship, equipping your boss to make a strong case by arming them with your brag book, all the greatest achievements you've had in your role and why you're very much warranting and deserving of a raise. So, you know, we forget bosses are people too. They might feel nervous asking for more for you as well. So make it a little easier on them by scripting their argument for them and reminding them of all the great evidence you have to back up your case. Valerie, thanks so much for walking the walk and modeling that for us in real time. I hope we'll have some good news and an update in the Courage community soon. In the meantime, let's just celebrate you for taking that next step and advocating for yourself via a proxy, in this case, your boss. It's a great move for us all to keep in mind. All right, boss, I want to hear from you. What did you think about what Aaron had to share today? Did our did our conversations give you a little bit of stress? A little anxiety around money? That's fair. That's like my family's entire history with money. <laughs> so that would be a totally fair response. Uh, if you're feeling really on top of your game, uh, I'd love to hear what's worked well for you and what you've learned, what you're taking away from this. I hope it motivates you to do something different, to try something new as you think about how to navigate money talks with the folks and really the loved ones in your life moving forward. Until next time, thanks for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing. That really makes a difference in, uh, in our podcast lifespan and reach and growth over the years. And I'm going to keep creating what it is that you want and need to hear. So my inbox is always open for any feedback you have. You can always shoot me an email at emily at bossedup.org or tag me online at Emily Aries or at bossedup.org and all the social medias. And until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose and together let's lift as we climb. 